And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. And ladies and gentlemen, to receive his award as runner-up world musical personality and Britain's top vocal personality, John Lennon. John. And of course, Britain's top vocal group and the world's top vocal group, the Beatles. A question I must ask you, why have you been silent as far as the British scene is concerned for so long? Couldn't you hear us. <laughs> We're very quiet, really. Yeah. You've been very quiet. Quiet, rural That's characters. Mm. On the farm, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the house, <laughs> up in the morning. <laughs> Peaceful life. Don't you think it's uh, sort of cutting it a bit fine with, with the, the fans generally who think they wish you had a little bit more of you? I don't know. We can no. see more of them and see and go no, anywhere else. Uh, you know, so you don't perform on radio, television, radio. Oh, of course we do. And well, we spend more time on recording now because we prefer recording. We've done half an LP in the time we'd take to do a whole LP and a couple of singles. So we can't do it all. You know. all we right. like recording. Can you disclose any secrets about this LP? Have you introduced any unusual instruments <laughs> this time? Uh, no, no, we no. can't use a sitar because everybody's using it. Now. Yes, we can. We can. Well, yeah. well, we got one for that one. Well, it's one like saying you can't use guitars because oh, everyone's using them. You know. Is it? <laughs> no. Well, it, it is if you say it like guitar like instead of sitar. Mm. Depends so, where you're from. So nothing new. Yeah, I've played sitar on another track, but yeah. you know, I mean, I don't care if everybody's using them. You know, I just play because I like it. What about the songs on this one that aren't your own compositions, John? Who's have you picked? There aren't any. None at all this time. That's why I say he's along as well. You haven't written them yet. Mm, well, Paul's always in Ireland, I'm in America. Yeah. Well, I'm always over there, aren't I? Yes. What do you go there for? I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> When's it going to be finished, do we hope? It should week. be finished <laughs> in about two or three weeks' time, really. Yeah. That yeah. is because if it's not, then we won't be able to get another holiday. <laughs> and anyway, we'll, we'll never be able to get another holiday in before we go away again. We don't so. get it done soon, Gov. We'll lose our job. By mid 1966, British fans were beginning to miss the Beatles' regular concert tours and had to be satisfied with sporadic television appearances and reduced sets for events such as the NME Poll Winners concert. With much work for the Beatles' seventh album already committed to tape in April and May of 1966, there was a certain amount of hurry-up needed if the band were to finish the record before flying out to Germany and Japan in June and release the album before the start of their US tour in August. The next song to be recorded had been written by Paul while on holiday with Jane Asher in Switzerland in March, after which Paul returned to London to start work on Revolver, and Jane began rehearsals at the Royal Theatre in Bristol. 
With the working title of Why Did It Die?, Paul admitted that it was most likely about another argument with Jane, a stark contrast to And I Love Her from just two years earlier. A monitor mix of takes one and two of Paul's latest composition, For No One, recorded on the 9th of May 1966. The song would be taken as far as take 10, which provided the basic track for overdubs and Paul's superb lead vocal, again using very speed to make it sound faster on replay. And French Horn, provided by Alan Civil, recorded on the 19th of May, another first for a Beatles record. Your day breaks. Your mind aches You find that all her words of kindness Linger on when she no longer needs you And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love beyond her tears Cry for no should have lasted years Thank you. 
stay home She goes out She says that long ago She knew someone But now he's gone She doesn't need him Your day breaks Your mind aches There will be times When all the things she said Will fill your head You won't forget that And in her eyes You see nothing No sign of love Behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have Last me An isolation mix of For No One, yet another personal favourite of Paul's to emerge from this album, and, like Eleanor Rigby, would be re-recorded nearly 20 years later for Paul's Give My Regards to Broad Street movie and soundtrack album. Of course, by this stage, there would need to be a song to feature Ringo's vocals, and since he wasn't writing any of his own at this point, it fell to John and Paul to provide one. Ringo and Paul explain. We'd be well into the album. And uh, we all knew that, you know, I'd be doing a number somewhere. It's just about three quarters of the way through. So we'd either say, have you got a song, you know, we've got this for you. I thought it might not be a bad idea, you know, for him, rather than trying to give him a very serious song, you know, because he wasn't that keen on singing. Uh, so the idea come up to do that, and I just remember lying in bed, just that moment before you're going to sleep, that little twilight moment. And silly ideas come into your head anyway. And then I just thought of this thing, Yellow Submarine, yeah, you know. Paul deliberately wanted an easy set of lyrics so that little kids could sing along. Paul dropped in on his friend Donovan Leith around the corner in Maidervale and played him what he had so far. There was a line missing and Paul needed something to fill the void. Donovan explains what happened next. He says, it goes like this. In the town... Where I was born, there in the man who sailed the sea. It was a yellow submarine on the way. And he said, and I'm missing a bit that goes like this. Da da, la 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 la, la 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 la. I said, okay, give me a moment. I was a little bit flattered and a little bit shy. But I'd heard that were Holmes and Beatles songs. Sometimes Ringo threw the bits in. And sometimes Big Mal Evans, the road manager, used to stick some in there. So, here comes a hole in another Beatles song. So I go into the bedroom, I come back, and I look at Paul and I say, Sky blue and sea green in the yellow submarine. Hey Nell, 7-11-8 or anything. It's a record. 
who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed unto the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine Yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine Yellow submarine And our friends are all aboard Many more of them live next door And the band begins to play Construction of Take 4 of Yellow Submarine, the first of two Ringo songs with an underwater theme which would forever be associated with him. Of course, sound effects are a distinctive feature of the song, helping to provide its sing-along style and nautical atmosphere. On the 1st of June 1966, the Beatles and many friends, including Mick Jagger and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Marianne Faithful, Paddy Harrison, George Martin, Neil Aspinall and road manager Mal Evans raided the famous Cupboard Under the Stairs in Studio 2, a trap room for all sorts of percussion instruments and bits and pieces to create the backdrop for Ringo's number. There were handbells, ship's bells, whistles, even a metal bath full of water with a chain swirled around inside it, and naturally John Lennon blowing bubbles in a bucket of water. A conga line formed behind Mal Evans sporting a bass drum, singing the chorus as they marched around the studio floor. Such was the atmosphere in Studio 2 that evening.
isolated sound effects track for Yellow Submarine, many of which were faded down in the final mix. Ironically, the overdub which took the longest time to record was a spoken word introduction, which, after spending several hours putting it together, was removed from the final mix. And we will march till three the day to see them gathered there. From Lander Groats to John O'Green, with Stepney do we tread. To see us yellow submarine, we love it. In the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea. And he told us of his life in the land of submarines.
take five of Yellow Submarine, complete with spoken word introduction and the full sound effects track in place. Ringo now had his special spot on the album and a song which is still part of his live set today. The following evening of the 2nd of June saw the beginning of George's unprecedented third album track. As had been the case for Love You Too, George didn't have a title for his new song. When asked by George Martin what it was called, George replied, I don't know. John instantly chimed in with his suggestion, Granny Smith Part Friggin' Two, a reference to the working title of Love You Too. Engineer Jeff Emmerich then laconically suggested Laxton's Superb, another variety of Apple, just to keep the theme running. Perhaps even a subconscious precursor to the Beatles' future company and record label name. By the 3rd of June, the title had changed to I Don't Know, based on George's original response to George Martin's question. stereo mix of I Want to Tell You, now with the official title firmly in place. This track would see yet another first on the Beatles recording, the overdubbing of a completely bass guitar only track, allowing for greater flexibility in the mixing stage. Again, George's track was finished quickly, not being afforded the same time allocations as John and Paul's numbers, something which would lead to growing frustration from George in years to come. Next cab off the rank was a song which would open the B-side of the new LP. 
perhaps based on American folk rock group The Love and Spoonful's Daydream, which was recently in the charts, the basic track featured Ringo on drums, Paul on piano, and either John or George on bass. After extensive rehearsals, just three takes were recorded, with take one deemed best. reconstruction of take one of Good Day Sunshine, a very quick recording which only needed vocal harmonies, hand claps and a honky-tonk piano solo, played by George Martin, to make the song complete. Only two songs were now needed to finish the 14 tracks for the album, and Paul was the first to contribute. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here. Each one believing 
Seven of Here, There and Everywhere, with backing harmonies flown in from Master Take 13. Inspired by the Beach Boys' masterpiece God Only Knows from their recently released Pet Sounds album, the Beatles returned to their exquisite three-part harmonies, which were a hallmark of This Boy, Yes It Is, and more recently, Michelle. Several sessions, concluding on the 17th of June 1966, were devoted to perfecting the recording, yielding impressive results. A track from earlier sessions would be completed on the 20th with the addition of a simple guitar overdub and brass section.
an isolation mix of the Motown and LSD-inspired Got To Get You Into My Life. The final song recorded would also be the result of an LSD trip, as John explains. Well, we were on tour in one of those houses, like, you know, Doris Day's house or whatever it was we used to stay. And the three of us took it, Ringo, George and I, and I think maybe Neil, and a couple of the birds, you know, that, what's his name? The one in the Steels and Nash thing. You know the birds? Yeah, B-Y-R-D? Crosby. Crosby and the other guy who used to be the leader. McGuinn. They came, I think they came around, I'm not sure, on a few trips. We all, and we were in the garden, had it. It was only the second one. We still didn't know anything about do it in a nice place and cool it and all that. We just took it, you know. And Peter Fonda came, and that was another thing. And he kept up saying, I know what it's like to be dead. What? Mm-hmm. And he kept saying it, you know. We were saying, for Christ's sake, shut up, we don't care. <laughs> you know, we don't want to know. And he kept going on about it. And that's how I wrote, she said, she said. I know what it's like to be dead. Well, it was a sad song, you know. That was just an acidy song, I suppose. And when I was a little boy, you see. All, a lot of, you know, early childhood was coming out anyway. There's no specific things. I only wrote because the guy said, I know what it's like to be dead. I thought that was, if I'd read it in the paper, I would have written a song about it. And to write a mood song, if I'm sad, I would just write sort of sad things. It, you know, just remember sad things. When I was a boy, everything was right and all that, which was a dream, but, you know. I would put myself in a sad mood and write a sad song. He said, he said, did he? Oh, that's very nice indeed. Hello? Hello? Okay? He said, I know what it's like to be dead. I said, I said, I must be out of my head. He said, home demos of the song inspired by Peter Fonda. The original lyrics featured the words he said, but soon changed to she said as writing progressed. 
almost at the last minute, John's brand new song would be recorded in nine hours in just four takes with minimal overdubs on the 21st of June, 1966. <laughs> isolation mix of She Said, She Said. And with that, recording for the album was complete. The final stereo and mono mixes for the album were made the following day, and Revolver was ready for release just two weeks later, on the 5th of August, 1966. But, as with Rubber Soul, Revolver needed a cover design. And like the music contained in the record sleeve, the cover art would be a radical change from albums past. Artist, bass player, and friend of the band from their Hamburg days, Klaus Vormann was enlisted to create something special. Well, the first time John called me, I was completely overawed. You know, it was just so amazing that they asked me to even thinking about maybe doing a cover for them. That was just very, very heavy for me. It was difficult to accept that fact. But it went a little easier when he said, come down to the studio and listen to the tracks. And that was sort of the key to getting down to it. And I was, of course, expecting that I would say I want something like this and that, but nothing like that happened. I listened to the music, and then I was there and had to come up with an idea. 
I was very, very difficult because the music was really overwhelming, and I was at the time, I was just too much really, and I thought this is too much for the standard Beatle fan who was used to little love songs and all their hits and stuff. But suddenly you had just the most amazing music. I could do it black and white. Thought the idea was great because everything else was color, so I did black. Well, to convey was definitely the fact in which you can see on the cover, and I think that's why it was so successful too, is that you have all this hair. <laughs> uh, new hair is really, really important, and the fact that they had hair on their forehead and stuff was like a completely new thing. Normally, the people had shaved their heads and and had a normal hairstyle, and this was sensational. It was uh, was uh, really very, very important at the time. And at the same time, important was that the fans had something to look at. So I put lots of pictures on it, as many pictures as I could possibly put on it that still would look good, so that the fans could see their their Beatles. That was important. And did the Beatles like what you came up with? Oh, they loved it. They saw the uh, they saw the first sketch I showed them, and then I was happy, and I knew I'm going to do the cover, and and they all loved it. Revolver would surprise and delight Beatles fans regarded today as one of their most important albums, and indeed one of the most important albums of all time, Revolver gave the Beatles and George Martin a taste for experimentation, both musically and technically. In Rubber Soul and Revolver, to me, they could both be like Volume 1 and Volume 2. Maybe I'm wrong, I haven't played them right back to back of each other, but they both were very pleasant and enjoyable records for, for, for me. I mean, it has that quality because it you know it's the follow-on and we were just starting I feel to really find ourselves in the studio you know where what we could do which was you know over just being the four of us uh, playing our instruments and, and the vocals and their ideas now were beginning to become much more potent in the studio and they would start telling me what they wanted and they would start um, pressing me for more ideas and more ways of translating those ideas into reality. And the joke is, you know, just to show you kind of how you, how you can be wrong, you know, you can always make mistakes. I was really, one point, remember being in Germany on tour, playing the album just before it came out. I got real down because I thought it was all out of tune. Really? Really brought down everyone I kind of had to tell me. It was when we were trying to think of the title, Revolver. Oh, Revolver was the one I was talking about. I thought it was out of tune. However, with the increasing complexity of their music, the Beatles would find it impossible to replicate the songs on stage and do them justice, which meant that none of the songs on Revolver would ever be played live by the Beatles in their last tours in 1966. In those days, there was no technology like there is now. I mean, there was two guitars, bass and drums, and that was it. If we did stuff in the studio with the aid of um, recording tricks, then we couldn't just reproduce them on stage like nowadays you could you could do tomorrow never knows have all the loops up there on a keyboard kind of emulator stuff and you could have as many piano players and drummers and you know orchestras whatever you wanted but in those days that's it we were just a little dance hall band and we never really thought of augmenting ourselves it was i think it was an interesting thing to do because it kind of paved the way for what was to come in 1967 with Sgt. Pepper. Well, that's it for this episode. 
Next time we head out on tour with the Beatles as they return to Germany for the first time in four years, and then onto the far east of Japan. Until next time. Cause it's